First of all, I want to say what an incredible privilege it is for Terry and I that we have had the opportunity to be ordained here at Foothill. As I look around, of course, there's many of you I don't know that well. There are many that I do. But you're our family, and it means more than we could possibly express that here is where we had a chance to be set apart for ministry, acknowledged for that role. Um, we want to thank, of course, David, you have been a great friend, mentor, a big brother, and I know that you will continue in our friendship to be a great example to me. And I just pray that whatever the Lord leads us to and whatever we do, that we'll be able to be as faithful in what he calls us to as you have been to us as an example. And also to thank the other pastors for their continued encouragement, support, and input to the elder board for the privilege of letting us kind of sit in and spy on them to see how, how they do things, to learn from their example and from their input. It's just been a tremendous blessing. But to recognize that all of you are ordaining us and what a privilege that is, and we thank you for that. We don't know exactly what we're going to be called to, but I thought just briefly I'd share a little bit about where our passions are, what we feel, uh, or maybe our unique area that we want to address. And I think it came as when I became a believer and I first started to learn a few things and I went to Bible school, I realized how ignorant I was. Uh, not in the sense that there was uh, facts that I didn't know, but for the first time there, was, uh, there were people leading me through a systematic understanding of what my faith was like. And I realized that for the first part of my Christian life, I had no clue about the richness of what the faith, and I shared this a little bit in the ordination council, but what that gave to me is a vision for the fact of what should exist for other believers as well, and also for those who initially come to the faith, to have a chance to find out just how glorious our faith is, how wonderful can be the life that we can live in Christ, and also the ways that we can grow, the things that we need to know to grow. So that's what we feel called to. I think it's also important to say, as having just graduated from graduate school, it would be easy for that to go to my head, but I remember two key factors. One, when I was in high school, I had turned laziness into an art form. <laughs> I would have been voted least likely to succeed, but they didn't even think I'd graduate and get to that place. Like, <laughs> So the fact that I went to, uh, to, to graduate school and successfully completed it is a testimony not to myself but to the Lord and for the way he changed me. And before I uh, came to the Lord, I took one college class, and one of the requirements, the first one they listed on the syllabus, was that I would have to give an oral report. There was a staggering 12 people in the class, and I looked at that requirement and I said, not over my dead body. Am I going to stand in front of people? I just could not possibly do something like that. And I'm sure God, in his divine, omniscient humor, looked at that and said, well, we'll see. <laughs> but the fact that I'm able to stand before you and, and share from the word that I've been able to learn from it are testimonies to God's grace working in me, not of natural abilities that I had. And so I read 1 Corinthians about not many mighty, not many great, not many wise. I said, that's me. I'm not part of those not many's. Well, if you'd turn to Psalm 73, please. And I picked Psalm 73 because it's my favorite psalm. And also because it fits into the theme. It talks about how to be the kind of people God wants us to be. A couple of things I think that are helpful in looking at a psalm like this is, first of all, to understand who wrote it. 
And the author of this particular psalm is a fellow by the name of Asaph. Now, Asaph has a lot in common with our beloved brother Ron. He was a leader of the choirs. But rather than the local church where he led the choirs was in the worship of Yahweh at the, temp- at the tabernacle. He was one of three of the Levites who was appointed to lead the choirs in the worship before the presence of God at the tabernacle. The other thing is the helpful is to understand the kind of book that we're looking at. This is a psalm that's known as a wisdom psalm. And wisdom literature is dedicated to the purpose of making a person wise in the sense of understanding the difference between what makes a life successful and worth living and one that isn't. Unlike other definitions that might exist, it's not an issue of how much you know, the breadth of your understanding. It's how you're able to take what you know, apply it to how life really works, and then live in a way that will make you ultimately successful. But because the poetry we're reading has a wisdom that's a little bit different than the world, it's not just a wisdom that will make things work for the short term, but which will make us wise for the long term. So that's why in the wisdom literature, for instance, in Psalm 14.1, there's the uh, part of that psalm that says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And you might say, well, what does that have to do with being a fool or being wise? Well, from an Old Testament wisdom perspective, you can either begin to understand the life that God is calling you to and what he wants you to do with your life and how he wants you to live and what ultimately you're responsible for if you don't understand that there's a God. The only word for someone like that is that they're a fool. Conversely, there's another that says in the Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. And again, it's the same kind of principle. If you want to live a life that is ultimately wise and successful, you need to start out with the understanding that there is a God to whom we're all accountable for. And in our accountability, recognize his awesomeness. And in fearing that, you will begin to order your life from that point on in a way that is genuinely wise. And this is the kind of literature we have in Psalm 73. We'll read the first verse. It says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. You may know this, you may not, but in Hebrew poetry, rhyming isn't quite like it is in English. It's not like roses are red, violets are blue, etc., etc. Instead, you take thoughts and you rhyme the concepts with one another, not the sounds. And this first verse is a couplet. And these couplets would parallel each other. And that's one of the typical features of Hebrew poetry. And what this would do is either say the same thing in two radically different ways, or they would contrast one another by saying opposites. In this case, they're synonymous. The two expressions mean exactly the same thing. So Israel is the same as those who are pure in heart. The reason why that's important is to understand that this verse sets the tone and the lesson for the entire psalm. In a sense, before he gets into his own autobiographical story about his experience, what he learned about wisdom, he begins this by saying, God is good. To whom is God good? First of all, he's good to Israel, God's covenant people. But he adds that he is good to those who are pure in heart. And the word means to be clean, be free of any kind of moral filth. And the synonymous aspect of this plays back into the covenant that God had made with his people. God had said that if you follow what I tell you to do and you're obedient to all the laws I give to you, I will bless you with all the things in this world that there are to be blessed with. On the contrary, if 
you disobey me and all the laws that I have given you, the consequences will be that I will curse you and bring difficulties and hardship upon you such as you could not possibly imagine. Because he wanted them to be, in a sense, a display of his work with people. That people would understand that to live rightly, to be obedient to God had consequences that were good. To be disobedient would have consequences that are very bad. And when he starts off by saying, surely, what he's saying is this is a truism. This is something you can bank on. It's absolutely certain. Now, understanding this basic idea from here, we're going to talk about what happened to Asaph. Because the very next verse says, but as for me, and in the Hebrew language, this is a very strong contrast. In other words, this is an absolute truism. But here's my experience. He goes on to say, my feet came close to stumbling and my steps had almost slipped. Another parallel cutlet. And what he's saying is, and using this kind of metaphor, as he's drawing from a breadth of wisdom literature that sees life as a journey, walking down a path, and that this path is narrow and it's defined, and that's the way we must walk. And that if you go to one side or the other, or brushed off this path, then you will be off the life that God wants for you. And the idea here is he's saying that, yes, I knew that this was absolutely true, but I came close to falling off that path. My feet were almost taken out from under me. In verses 3 through 12, we'll talk about this disheartening observation that brought him to this place. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have their mouths set against heaven, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. I don't know about you, but I suspect that like me, you have seen this sort of situation. What Asaph is describing is that as he's diligently trying to obey the word of God, that he looks at people around him and he sees the wicked succeeding. Now, throughout this psalm, there's a lot of colorful language that's used and it's very metaphorical. And the idea is, is to take something concrete to sort of aliven the, the uh, abstract idea. For instance, when he's trying to describe just how abundant are the riches that these people have, he says that their eyes are bulging out with fatness. Now, that's a very, very colorful metaphor to describe what's going on, but it certainly brings home the point, doesn't it? These people have so much, they're about to explode. In our life, because of the culture in which we live and the opulence of our lives, you know, we are worrying about the struggle to lose weight. 
in ancient cultures because they never seemed to be too far away from the next famine. Only the rich were fed. So for someone to be extremely large meant that this was a person that has profound resources at their disposal. And not only are these people gaining in their prosperity, on top of that, they're arrogant about it. This idea of their speaking up to heaven and their tongue parading around the earth is this idea that they're just boastful and they're dominating people with the way that they speak to them. So they're successful, they're arrogant, they oppress people. And this isn't lining up with what Asaph would have expected. But, you know, I, what I respect about this is it's very transparent. If it had been me, I would have said, and you know, that's just wrong. That's just wrong. They shouldn't be. And after all, in that culture, not only was it just this abstract idea, you know, God should really be good to people who are good and he should punish the wicked. This was actually a specific part of the covenant that God had made with them. They had been promised that if they disobeyed, that they would be punished. And yet here we have all these wicked, disobedient people, and yet they're prospering. But it wasn't the academic principle that was at the heart of it. The real issue was Asaph was envious. Here he was laboring for the Lord, and he was getting nowhere. He didn't have the riches that these wicked people had. He didn't have the advantages that those people had. And it started to affect him. Why is it that they're prospering and I'm not? Why is it, in fact, he will go on to say that my life is more like I'm being punished? He says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocent. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Those words in verse 14 are words of punishment. And what he's saying is, God, these people are wicked, and no matter how wicked they are, in fact, the more wicked they become, the more they prosper. But here I am, I'm laboring, I'm even in your service as a Levite. I'm one of the three guys that makes sure that the people are praising you properly, and I feel like I'm being punished. In verse 13 he makes a specific contrast to verse 1 because verse 1, remember, the principle is that surely God is good to those who have a pure heart. And he says now, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. He's coming to the conclusion that, you know, you won't get ahead by being pure of heart, by being obedient to the Lord. And the truth of the matter is, if we'll be honest with each other, that's where the rubber will hit the road we'll begin to wonder, is it really in my best interest to serve the Lord and to always be obedient to to what he tells us to do? Because the truth of the matter is, the wicked will prosper. And after a while, when you see those things, it can begin to tempt you, just like it did to Asaph, that maybe following the Lord with all my heart is not the best idea. Maybe, in the end, I will be the poorer for it. A friend of mine I used to work with, and I won't mention a company because this kind of thing happens everywhere, but this person was told specifically to disobey a federal law. And when they refused, they can't really fire you for not breaking the law. So instead, they just took note of it, and very shortly she was demoted. And they put somebody in her place that would break the law. 
And there's no happy ending to the story. It wasn't that the company all of a sudden turned around and repented and said, oh my goodness, we shouldn't have done that. And what were we thinking? You're just acting righteously. That was the end of her career with that company. And we all will face in different ways and in different circumstances the same exact temptation. To look and see yourself, in a sense, disadvantaged by choosing to do the righteous thing, while others who choose to do the unrighteous thing seem to, pro- seem to prosper. In fact, there's a whole series of literature that's called a theodicy to deal with this. And when we look at life, the question that hangs out there is why, if God is all good, and God knows everything that can possibly be known, there's nothing he's not catching, and God is absolutely powerful, so there's nothing that can keep him from doing what he wants to do, why do we see situations like this? This is an old story. This psalm is a thousand years old. Job deals with the same question, and it's 500 years older than that. Because it's a real issue. And when you are out and talking to unbelievers, one of the first questions that they'll ask you is, if God is all-powerful and God is all-good, how come? Why do these things happen? There are various answers and various pieces of literature as the Scriptures deal with this, but this one has a very specific answer that I hope will be helpful and I think is important to have a right perspective I think it's kind of interesting, too, to look at the first part of this psalm to realize that what he's looking at, because in these verses, we have over a dozen examples of him using a third personal pronoun, meaning they do this, they do that, they have this, they have that. So his eyes and his attention is very much focused on the advantages that these people are gaining. But fortunately for Asaph, he was going to be exposed to the big picture. Starting in verse 15, he says, If I had said thus, or rather, if I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Basically, what he's saying at this juncture is, he didn't feel free to bring himself to stand before the people of God and say, you know, it isn't worth it to share what he was thinking. So he was struggling profoundly to the place he said, I'm almost being swept away from obeying the Lord and having that sort of lifestyle. I can't, couldn't say it because I knew it would be betraying your people. But in verse 16, when he says, I tried to think about this, in his own resources, as he's trying to grapple with it, he doesn't have a good answer. He has no good explanation for why these righteous people, like himself, are not prospering, while the wicked seem to prosper more and more all the time. Then we move on in verse 17. He says, Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Apparently, as he was wrestling with this, he went in his service to the temple and began to, or to the tabernacle and began to meditate upon the reality of God 
and the accountability that there is to God. And what their God has said and what their God has done in the past. And he came to a realization that he wasn't seeing the whole picture. The fact is that these people were prospering. But that wasn't going to be the whole story. In verse 18 he says, Surely you have set them in slippery places. What you should catch is now he's once again saying, this is a truism. He was saying, I had almost slipped. I'd almost lost my footing. I'd almost fallen off the path. But now he's saying, the truth is, it's not me who's close to slipping and falling off the path. It's the wicked. They're the ones who are going to fall. He says, you cast them down to destruction. And the word for destruction is the one that's used of what's left when some horrible storm has passed over the area. Total devastation. That's their lot. And then there's this interesting metaphor that he uses. He says, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. And the idea is, we've all had dreams, and as you're waking up, the images you have, those phantoms of your mind, disappear in a moment. And what he's saying is, there's going to be a time when the God who is quiet and doesn't make himself overtly known in space and time will all of a sudden change, and he will arouse himself, and he will act. And when he acts, the seeming prosperity of those who are wicked will disappear like a phantom dream, and will be gone. And then reality will set in. Then he goes on and describes a little bit more about his situation. He says, When my heart was embittered, and I was pierced within, these are highly emotive terms. And I think what he wants us to do is enter into the pain that he has. If you've never been disadvantaged for doing the right thing, and you've never seen people prosper who are doing the wrong thing maybe you don't understand but he was hurt deeply inside but he's saying when that was true about me i was senseless and ignorant i was like a beast before you the word senseless basically means dull-witted someone who just doesn't get it and to be ignorant means you just don't know anything about the subject that you're talking about but what i like is this idea of a beast and what this made me think of is when I used to uh, drive to school, we'd go down through Brea Canyon, and there's always this one section where we pass this old ranch, I don't know what it's called, and there would always be a few cattle that were by the side of the road, and they'd watch as the cars were going by. And I thought, well, what does it really mean to perceive like a beast? And I was thinking, well, I wonder what the uh, cows think as we're driving by. Do they think, wow, I like that car? <laughs> you know, those humans, they're pretty clever. We never thought about doing something like this. We could get over those hills so much faster if we had one of them. I think what it is is we don't have opposable thumbs or else we would have been able to do something like that ourselves. I wonder what kind of gas mileage he gets on that thing. The truth of the matter is they're aware of the object going by and that's about it. They just do not comprehend what's in front of them. Now, for an animal, that's okay. What Asaph is saying is, I was just like that, but about spiritual things. Things were going by my eyes, and I had no clue. I was dumb as a beast and could not comprehend the big picture. All I could see was right before me. 
like the, the cud that the animals would chew. I was clueless. And I think that we need to see that just like he did, we can be tempted to be in the same way, to be absolutely clueless. And frankly, to think of this, and if this has been recorded by the inspiration of God's Spirit for all of us to read, this is not the greatest compliment that you could possibly pay a human being. That you basically have the perception of a cow when it comes to spiritual things. And that here was a great man who was a leader. This wasn't just your ordinary Jewish person who was being a little bit dense when it came to spiritual things. This was one of the key guys. Someone that David so admired that he made him one of his three most significant worship leaders. So if it can happen to him, it definitely can happen to us. From there, though, he, gives, he tells about how he got this renewed vision for life. In verses 23 and following. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. And afterward, receive me to glory. What's interesting in some of the verses, and this is my pet peeve about translations, for, for stylistic purposes, they will take exactly the same phrase and translate it differently. And so sometimes the exact same phrase is used not because they're not very creative in the way they express themselves, but because they want you to key on in to a very central principle that's being repeated. When it says, I am continually with you in 23... And when he says in verse 25, besides you, I, have no, I uh, desire nothing, those are exactly the same things. What he's talking about is the fact that while he was oblivious to what was going around him, God was with him. Not just with him in the sense that God was in the area, but that God was with him in a sense of a relationship that he was close to God. And God was close to him even when he was totally oblivious to that. He says, you have taken hold of my right hand. And the idea is that God is not only with him, but he takes him by the hand and will be with him and care for him. He says, with your counsel, you will guide me. The God of the universe, their God, is taking him by the hand, would guide him and give him the knowledge of what is really true. And afterwards, receive me to glory. Now, because we have read the New Testament, we might read a little bit more into there than maybe what Asaph meant. And when we read the New Testament about going to glory, it's very clearly what we're talking about is our eternal reward. And we have a lot of specific thoughts about what that means. The likelihood is that what Asaph is talking about is a little less defined, but is in specific contrast to what he had thought before. He saw himself as impoverished. But he's looking forward to the time that he will go to glory in the sense that he will be enriched. Ultimately, the, the wicked, they're going to go into ruin. But not for him. Because his God is leading him by the hand throughout his life and will ensure that he will deliver him to a place of glory and exaltation and, and eternal wealth. And we know from our theology all that that means. But the idea inherent in this psalm is... I am not the one who's impoverished. I'm the one who's rich. And the time is coming when I will get my inheritance. 
Verse 25 and 26 are my two favorite verses in all of Scripture. <clears throat> Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. The idea of desire is the idea of delighting. And delighting is a good word, I think, as opposed to desiring, because when we think of desiring, it's just something that you want. You might want it a little bit. You might want it a lot. But something that you delight in. You delight in your wife. You delight in your children. You delight in those things that are the most wonderful things of your soul. And he's saying, when I'm thinking about the reality that I'm in your presence, there is nothing to delight in in this world. Nothing in comparison with you has any real meaning or intrinsic value compared with being with you. It says, my heart, my flesh and my heart may fail. Remember earlier as he's talking about the, uh, the evil, there is no pain in their death. Their deaths are easy and it seems like the righteous, when they die, they suffer and it's miserable. But he's saying, my flesh and my heart may fail. But God himself is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, this is where it's important to know that he's a Levite. You know, when the, Levite, when the tribes were allotted their portions, all the tribes got their land, their real estate, but the Levites, they got the Lord. The Lord was their portion. So for him, this is a very meaningful idea, and one that's repeated frequently in the Old Testament, that my inheritance is not this, this land or some kind of wealth, but my inheritance is God himself. Forever. Though the wicked will come to eternal destruction and ruin, I will have the greatest riches forever. In a sense, I think that as he starts this pilgrimage, he is discouraged about what God is not doing for him. And now he's come to the place where he realizes what God can be for him. Verse 27, Before behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, there's another one of those contrasts. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. What's interesting is he got to a place of despair where he couldn't share his heart. He didn't believe anymore. He wasn't sure that, it really proved, that the things that he had embraced were really true, and he had to keep it to himself because he couldn't share. When he gets to the end of this story, he's saying, I can't contain myself anymore, but not because I don't want people to know the doubts that I have, but I'm overflowing with the excitement and enthusiasm of the reality that these things are true. Truly, God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. I guess when we read these things about these stories of the past, one temptation can be, well, that's very interesting. Now I know what Psalm 73 is about, and I know that Asaph had a rough time in his life, but that God and his goodness illumined his mind so that he was once again restored to a place of real faith and confidence. But the reason why I took this passage, I think, is because in one way or another, at one time or another, and maybe many times, 
we will be questioning in ourselves if all the things that we may go through are really worth the sacrifice. Or maybe what we'll do is we won't turn our backs on the faith, but we'll compromise. After all, I can love the world in a little bit and still love God. What's the harm in it? But I think what the psalm does is it gives us why I, said, why I titled it as a matter of perspective is if we exclude the true, eternal truths and the realities of God, then the life we're called to will never make sense. We'll always see it in a skewed way. There's a specific filmmaker who's made at least two movies with the intent purpose of showing that we live in a purposeless universe. To show that the evil do prosper. That everything is random. So yes, maybe some evil people get punished, but it's not necessarily so. And maybe being a good person might benefit some, but not necessarily. That it makes no difference. And that kind of practical atheism can infect us unless we continually reinforce our understanding that God is real. The resolution of the psalm is that the wicked always do come to ruin and that God is good to those who are pure in heart, but not right away. You have to put it in its bigger picture. You have to read the end of the book. Like any other story, for a while, the wicked are allowed to have some success. But the end of the story is what defines the story. That eventually God will deal with the wicked. And that he will make it worth our while for the sacrifices that we make. But you might ask, well, where is our sanctuary? Um, last I checked, there's no tabernacle around where we can go see the uh, manifest presence of God. And in a sense, we come here to worship, and this is our sanctuary. As the body of Christ comes, he is in all of us. But what is it that we're looking for? What is it that will make the difference? In Hebrews chapter 11, there's a very interesting uh, expression of what is necessary for us to succeed. In that, he says in verse 6, But without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, that's a very powerful statement. When God says that something is absolutely impossible and he makes a large categorical statement, those are ones that you really need to pay attention to. What he's saying is, if, why is it impossible? It's because those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And after that, he goes on a litany of describing all these great saints of the past who did just that. They went through very difficult situations that, would have, that could have tried their souls and crushed them and left them disobedient. But they believed that God was real. And not just that he was real, but that eventually he would reward those who were his. I think it's important because sometimes I know that when I was kind of growing up in the faith, I had this impression that what God was calling us to is eternal altruism on his behalf. Meaning that... God was expecting from us to turn aside our lives. And when he said, you lose your life for me, that meant you turn it over and what I will guarantee you in exchange is misery. But it'll please me. And that's what your lot in life is. And at least you won't go to hell. But that's a very distorted picture. 
Because the desire for pleasure and fulfillment and for meaning, those are all things God put in our hearts. The devil didn't put them there and the world didn't put them there. Our problem tends to be as we look for the wrong thing and try to find satisfaction in things that won't satisfy. The reward is that we will be with God himself. And one of the things that sometimes it's just overwhelming to me to realize that there is a time where when God will call us into his presence and he will look at us and welcome us. And that's a powerful image. Can you imagine the God of heaven will look at you with love, with acceptance, welcoming you home, as it were, to be with him forever. And all that he is and all that he has will flow out to you as a reward because you believed and you were obedient. Now, because of our understanding of grace, sometimes we have a little problem with this idea of obedience, that that's an important thing. But what they're not talking about is that we're earning God's favor, but that those people who are related to God will be righteous because that's what he's doing. He's creating within us a likeness, a family likeness, so we'll fit in when we're heaven. Not that we earn that place, but that is what he does within us so that we'll be at home. But I thought to close, to encourage us with this image that the, uh, this Levite had that enabled him to turn his world around and no longer be affected by the things that he saw. I'd like you to turn with me to Revelation chapter one, 21. Pardon me. Pretty easy to find. It's the second to the last chapter. In the first eight verses, what's important to me is that this is not just amazing stuff. This is real. And this is what we're looking forward to one day. John writes to us, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. There are some things that scriptures repeat over and over and over and over and over again. As an exercise sometime as you read the New Testament, note how many times our eternal reward is mentioned as the motivation for holy living. In almost every New Testament book that's presented. Why? Because you just will not be able to succeed in all that God may call you to do if you don't believe that. Have you ever thought of what the disciples went through? 
Shortly after they were filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they were called to answer to the Jewish authorities for what they were doing, preaching about this heretic, Jesus, that had risen from the dead. And they commanded them not to say a word about it. And then they refused. So what, they, what did the authorities do? They beat them. And when they left, the disciples were praising God for the privilege of being beaten. Now I'm sure the Jewish authorities were thinking, how do you deal with people like this? I thought beating was a pretty good way to dissuade them, but they seemed to like it. But it's because they were so convinced that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead, so all the promises that scriptures had made were true, and so no matter what anybody did to them in this life, it wasn't going to make a bit of difference, because they were committed to the Lord and to what eternity would show. And that is what made them absolutely impossible to stop. The devil couldn't do it. The world couldn't do it because of this vision that the Lord had instilled in them. And I am convinced that the reason why this principle is repeated over and over and over and over again is because one of the primary ways the enemy will attack us is to get our minds focused on them, not on him. Because when they are focused on them, we are vulnerable to discouragement, disillusionment, and surrender to the enemy. So we will keep our eyes on what is ahead and we will be victorious. We will overcome by the grace of Jesus Christ. If you'll join me in prayer, please. Father, I hardly know what to say in the midst of this family. I feel so privileged to be a part of them. There's so many times and so many of them have been examples to me of dedication to you, of service to you, of selflessness, of kindness, of compassion, of wisdom and understanding, and that they would be so kind and so gracious as to bestow this honor upon us to say that they see us as being fit to have some kind of role in leadership. And that they would send us off with their blessing to wherever it is that you're going to send us. I pray, Father, for all the kindness and the blessing that they have been to us, that you would return that blessing to them. But I pray for us all, Father, that you would give us an eternal perspective, that we would live lives in anticipation, anxious anticipation of heaven, that we would be every day waking up and saying, maybe today, Lord, you will break into history, and we will have the privilege of seeing your wonderful face. And then face the day knowing that whatever you do bring our way can in no way diminish the wonder of what you have in store for us. I think of the words that you inspired Paul to write. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That doesn't mean the times aren't difficult. Well, the things that you ask us to go through cannot be heart-wrenching. But it just says how much more glorious will be the eternity to which you call us. And we thank you for this. And thank you that it was not something we earned, but as a love gift that you have bought for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.